G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. If you are a fan of Occupied and you're looking for more occupational therapy podcast content, check out otpodcasts.com for a, a massive list of amazing podcasts for all things OT. This week's episode, we had a fantastic chat with Alexis Jolie. We covered pretty much everything when it came to OT, occupation, self-development, challenging yourself, going out of your comfort zone, you name it, we probably talked about it. So I hope you guys really love this one because I know I didn't. How did OT find you, Alexis? Oh, you know, it fell in my lap. I told the story a few times, but it's always a little bit different in perspective from year to year that I practice occupational therapy in that I was sitting in a programs for special needs class, teeter-tottering between child psychology and special education in regards to where I wanted to go with a professional career and an occupational therapist came to speak to our class about what she does and my jaw dropped and I said where can I sign up and she goes hold your horses you need to finish your bachelor's to go get your master's and I said done <laughs> never thought I would go for a graduate program or anything beyond not not necessarily because I didn't think I could. It was more about, I want to be sure that I'm getting into something that my 100% heart is saying yes and screaming at me to do. Yep. So that is really what ended up happening and being my catalyst for where I am now. And I still to this day do not know the name of that occupational therapist. I can describe how she looks. I can describe the feeling I had, like hearing her speak. And I just want to thank her every day, and I can't do that. But I am very grateful for her presence and that because it brought me to this amazing, amazing practice that I've been able to step into. That's awesome. So when you when you finished, where did you end up working? Where did you go? I actually went into travel therapy. I went up to Northern California. I'm originally from Southern California, and. Uh, decided to get my feet wet to get more of a broader perspective of what occupational therapy does. Because in school, I was so tunnel focused on getting experience in hand therapy through my fieldwork to practice, and then getting experience in an outpatient pediatric clinic in that, that other fieldwork to practice. And I thought, you know, I really don't get the concept of what occupational therapy is. And so I need to figure that out. And so I stepped into travel therapy blind, um, not 100% blind. I would say blind to the uh, occupation, not occupation, the uh, opportunities yep. that yep. you can offer as an occupational therapist and the opportunity to learn and expand my ability to practice at my best self. Yep. So I jumped in. I. I did extensive interviewing with recruiters to figure out it was the right match for me. And then I jumped into skilled nursing and then followed my way to more of a long-term assisted living, independent living, 
setting and then jumped into working with the VA with polytrauma cases and then working in acute care and then going back to skilled nursing and going to outpatient and just having this gamut of long-term acute care setting, just a gamut of different settings and perspective and lessons learned and growth. Um, and then I settled in acute care and I've been there for almost five years now. Well, I've been at this particular hospital for five years now. And yeah, here we are. It's the journey's not over. Just keep riding along. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's never done. Never done. I, I, I think a lot of times just diving into thing and that tends to be how I learn as well but I think a lot of times there's there's a lot of benefit to doing it that way especially for people that so I've I've been teaching my students I teach at the moment if you didn't know that but I've been teaching my students a lot about sort of self-awareness and knowing what they're bringing into a therapeutic relationship mm. and like even this week we were looking at uh, like what assumptions are they taking into that therapeutic relationship. And I think for a lot of people that aren't uh, adept yet at, I guess, being aware of those assumptions and how to not let them affect uh, the therapy that they're, they're about to perform, diving into mm-hmm. the deep end can be a really valuable tool because you're going in there, I guess, with less knowledge than you would be accustomed to, but you're going in there with that less knowledge comes less assumptions. So I think yes. in, in some cases, it, it can be really valuable for people. Totally. You know, and that's something that I was observing on my travel assignments is there's this culture and this way that clinicians practice. And it's not limited to occupational therapy. Just we get into these rote, routine-based activities just like anybody else on this earth. And you come in fresh and you have these fresh pair of eyes and you're learning and you're absorbing like a sponge. And then you're also learning about the culture of the clients that are staying at that particular facility you're working at. And you're, you're basically like when it comes to the word travel, it's not just destination of this, the location or city or terrain, but it's actually like going to a different culture internationally. You're, you're absorbing how things operate and how people interact. And that is such a valuable learning tool to learn more about yourself and how you want to build that relationship as well with your client. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think, like, I mean, we look at culture. What is culture? Culture is a, a grouping of shared values and beliefs. And every workplace mm-hmm. is going to have a different culture. Every workplace has a culture. Every practice setting is going to have a different culture because there's different things that they do. There's different ways that they do it. Uh, You know, there's different people that, you know, some work cultures have a really high turnover, so they have a lot of brand new staff. Some some workplaces have, you know, staff that have been there for 20 years. Uh, Even that is going to make a very different culture. And I think one of the valuable things with that and, yeah, and we travel therapy isn't really a thing here in Australia. But what 
I've all and what I got encouraged to do and what I often encourage our our new grads to do is to you know change jobs every couple of years like oh, like in those first especially in the first two years like change jobs do two or three jobs in those first couple of years expose yourself to different aspects of the profession to to those different cultures and I think one of the valuable things with that is not necessarily well, obviously, just being exposed to the cultures, but being able to adapt and change to the cultures. I'm a, a big advocate, and I'm sure you've heard me talk about it before, um, of people essentially training their adaptability. Because I don't feel like it's something, and nothing to do with OT specifically, but I don't feel people in general do that very well nowadays. Right. And that's solid advice to give, not just our students, but to our seasoned or veteran practitioners, just exposing yourself to the opportunity to be more adaptable helps us to actually do a better job at being occupational therapists for our clients because they need us to be able to be, to give them the tools to be adaptable in their life, right? A thousand percent, thousand percent. And I mean, that's one of the things I used to do with a lot of my clients is it's all well and good, especially in the short term, to get them into you know routines and habits that help them manage and help them cope. But once they get to a stage where they're managing that really well, it's important you then teach them, well, how do you handle things when these routines don't work or when you know, they can't happen or something's happened that disrupts them? So uh, I think throwing, especially if it's a clinical environment, then you can obviously, it can be a very controlled change. but you know, life doesn't generally give us that many choices when it comes to, you know, curveballs that it might throw our way, but we still have to have the resilience and have the coping mechanisms to be able to manage whatever is thrown at us. So we can train that. It's something a lot of people don't think of very often, I don't think, but we, we have the capacity to be able to train and get used to adaptability to even short-term change. Some changes we can see coming from a mile off. Some changes are our choice. We we choose to change jobs, change cities, you know, um, do other lifestyle transitions. But some things, you know, accident, injury, illness, that kind of stuff, we don't see coming often. But we still need to have a certain level of, uh, I guess, resilience and coping mechanisms in able to transition that change successfully and I, I think that's a, a place where I think OTs in general can probably put a lot more work into because I think it's a really valuable area of occupational engagement uh, and, and especially when we're looking at routines and habits that is kind of neglected in a lot of places at the moment anyway. Yeah I agree I totally agree I was just reflecting on that as you were talking about it in that it's, I think what happens in in the human condition, and I think you can relate to this with any practice or even just teaching students as well about what we do as practitioners for clients post-injury or post-illness is that we are, we do a poor job as humans to anticipate a problem and anticipate how to prepare for it. We spend a lot of time and are preoccupied by worrying (laughs) 
in life about the next thing that we need to handle. However, we don't focus our attention on adapting and shifting and being flexible without an injury or an impairment or a disruption that's forced on us. And so that's a very interesting thing when we're purposefully choosing to be in an environment where we are asking for disruption, we are asking for discomfort, because then we're getting ahead of the game. And we're helping our, like you said, trading our adaptability to anticipate where we can change and shift and grow with the things that come our way. And for our clients too. And I think that's so crucial when we don't get what our client is going through, truly. I mean, they might have five broken bones and a head injury, and maybe this is their first experience in a hospital if they've just been admitted to the hospital for those injuries. Even if we've had experience with what to do with the, quote, diagnosis or with that psych component, we really don't know how that life is disrupted until we step into that life. Yeah. And yeah. allow ourselves, right, to like feel everything going on in that disruption on purpose before it it's kind of out of our control and we're forced to. Definitely. And I, I think the way I kind of look at it, like I, I do a lot of well, a lot of my occupations are sort of surrounding powerlifting, so a lot of coaching, a lot of training and that kind of stuff. But the way I kind of look out of it at it is I guess, kind of metaphorical from a powerlifting perspective in that any injury, so any physical injury is caused by one thing, and that's overloading tissue past what it's capable of coping with. And if we think about that on terms of people, that's essentially what we're doing. So any um, illness, injury, it's overloading something past what it's capable of. And with regards to occupation, like uh, routines and habits, things fall apart when we start overloading that system. So Mm -hmm. if we're able to strengthen that system and enable that system to cope with change better, to adapt faster, to adapt more efficiently, then it's able to cope with a lot more. So then small changes aren't going to, you know, throw a massive spanner in the works and they're going to be able to breeze past that and it might be then sort of larger changes that might throw a spanner in the works. But then we can train to enable that system to handle that load as well. And eventually, I mean, ideally, in, in theory anyway, you could potentially make someone essentially bulletproof with regards to that. But it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of uh, conscious exposure, I guess, to change because it can go the opposite in that if you're doing nothing except constantly changing anything, then you never actually develop that training. And it, it works the same in powerlifting. Like you can do a thousand just random lifts and you're not going to get any stronger. But when you structure them in you know, uh, a progressive overload pattern and, you know, take into account fatigue and, and all of that kind of stuff, then you can take those same lifts, put them in a very specific order, and you can get stronger. So I, I see a lot of correlation between between the two. Or maybe I'm just twisted and I think of things a bit weirdly, but... 
Who knows? No, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. And I actually really love how you related it to one of your favorite occupations. It, that's that's actually perfect because it gives the visual picture of exactly what we're talking about. It goes really great with the occupational balance piece too. So what is your opinion on occupational balance? <sighs> okay, OTs. <laughs> Brace yourself. Sit down. Uh, yeah, practitioners, students. Um, occupational balance is BS. It's BS. It's it's what what it really is is balance is beyond our stamina. BS is for beyond stamina. Um, <laughs> it's not where I thought that the, was going. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, so when you think about the word stamina, stamina is the ability to sustain prolonged physical or mental effort. Mm-hmm. And which means that balance is not sustainable or have the capacity to have stamina. I mean, we, in order for us to continuously be able to keep up with all the things in our life, the things we love, the things we need to do, the things that we want to do, in order to sustain that, we have to give up this constant chase for balance. You, if you want to live well, you cannot strive for balance. We talk about it with our clients and needing to help facilitate that in terms of managing fatigue, energy conservation strategies, work simplification strategies, being able to determine when to delegate activities of daily living to family, friends, caregivers, and when to take it on on their own in order to maximize their independence in their recoveries. But the truth is, if we're always trying to focus on building that balance, then we're striving to achieve a destination we're never going to achieve. We're always preoccupied about where we are going, but not on where we are in the moment. So for example, my physical body can be present with you here, but my mind might be on, oh shoot, I have to get my oil checked because every time my car stalls, I am hearing this weird buzzing sound and I really should be at the dealership having them check that right now. But despite my physical body being here on this podcast with you, my brain is there, right? And that's me constantly trying to achieve balance of, oh, I need to take care of my personal life. Oh, I need to help serve my OT tribe. Oh, I need to talk to Brock right now. Oh, I need to be with my boyfriend. Oh, you know, we're constantly on the chase to be somewhere else and we're not being present in the moment. We're not allowing our mind, our body and our spirit to get together at at once and focus in on where we are at. And that I believe is where we can truly achieve the ability to feel on an even plane and not constantly on a rock steady or not rock steady, an unsteady surface in our life. Yeah, and I think I think one of my issues with it is like what are we balancing? Mm. So even if you look up the definition of balance, it's about, you know, even proportions of something. You mm. you look at a seesaw, you need even proportions for that to balance, or a scale, you need even proportions on the other side. Like what are we actually balancing? I, I do think there is something in there concept-wise. I don't think it's got anything to do with balance. Uh, I think balance is most definitely not the right word for it. Um, right. Because even if you look up 
So you look up anything at all to do with balance, it's about even proportions. You look up occupational balance and it's about getting a perceived amount of uh, enough perceived, you know, whatever occupations. And I think that one of the things with that is, well, this is kind of a side rant, but very much related, is about the classifications of occupations and what purpose do they actually serve? Mm-hmm. So everyone will know, you know, the the old school ones, so like productivity, leisure, was it productivity, leisure, rest or whatever it is. And then there's newer ones, which were contracted, committed, um, something else, self-care and something. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, like what do they actually do? Do we treat each of those categories differently uh, when we're working with someone? I don't think we do, especially now that we're pushing for you know, 15 years ago, yeah, maybe. But now that we're very much pushing for being very client-centered, it doesn't matter what category it is. It, we're doing whichever, we're working with whichever occupation the person themselves wants us to work with. Like, it, it, I, I think the concept of balance originally probably came out of looking at trying to balance those, those different categories. And saying, like, you need, you know, any, if you don't have any productivity in your life, then you need some productivity. Or if you don't have any leisure in your life, you need some leisure. But I don't know mm. if that, one, I don't think the concepts, I don't feel from a practice point of view, the concept really holds up. Yeah, I guess theoretically you could look at it like that. But in reality, I've never gone, you know what I need in my life? More productivity. Or less productive, like <laughs> no one thinks like that for one. Um, and our clients wouldn't be able to describe that. We actually have to explain the whole concept to them, and then we have to explain we have to explain everything to them. We can't just interpret their information and put it straight into that model because it just wouldn't make sense. Like we can't mm-hmm. say like, "Are you getting enough productivity in your in your life?" Mainly because they don't yeah. know what that means. And the other thing is that for something to be a productive occupation, we need all of their contextual information to be able to determine that anyway. So they can't even just tell us, oh, yeah, this one's a productivity, this one like leisure, this one's self-care, whatever it is, because we essentially need them to have an OT degree to to understand it and to actually use it. And it just doesn't work like that. We need something more simple. And I, I think with that, the concept of occupational balance kind of becomes redundant as well, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And as you're talking about that, I'm trying to think of what is a great replacement word for that. And it's it's interesting because we refer to our practice as holistic, where we're incorporating all the things that are associated with the human in regards to what they occupy their time with. And holistic occupations, I don't think that that quite fits perfectly. However, I feel like we're circling around something that is going to define it a bit better because what you were saying, about what, first of all, what I really loved what you said about 
labeling the client as needing something to do or be productive doing. And I think a lot of the time, at least in the States, and I can speak for the hospital setting, we are put, we're pressing on our clients that self-care is a priority and a productive thing for them to be doing and focusing on. And so it's, it's like now, 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 let's do this now. You're leaving the hospital soon. <laughs> you have a short stay with us. But we need to do this thing because you do it every day and you wake up to do your ADLs. And, but is that really a productive form of our time spending with our client like that? No, I, I agree with you in that getting an occupational history, getting a valuable occupational profile of who this client is, where they've been, where they are, where they're going now with their reason why we're seeing them. And then we're able to achieve what is occupational satisfaction, I think. How satisfied are they in achieving what they need to do in order to get through their day, whether it's something they need, want, or have to do? It just has me thinking a lot. Yeah, I. one of the things I've kind of been toying with, and I haven't researched this at all, this is just all in my head, but have been looking at so when we look at balance even now when we look at balance we're looking at uh a perceived level of uh satisfaction with the amount of you know whatever category of occupation we have so why don't we cut out the i mean we're looking at holistic health we know that holistic health uh care leads to well-being that kind of stuff so why not cut out the middleman and just look at occupational well-being um we are then, you know, do you have a feeling of occupational well-being? Why? Why not? And it might not have anything to do with the types of occupation, the number of occupations, but for me, getting rid of those categories, well, not getting rid of those categories, but looking at it aside from those categories um, can be really valuable. I remember reading an article by Karen Hamill uh, years ago that hypothesize that instead of categorizing occupations, that we might be better off categorizing reasons for engagement. Mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. she, and I can't, I'm going to butcher this, but I can't remember the exact, like she came up with a list of these are, you know, something that she put forward as these are possible, uh, you know, reasons for engagement that we could look at. And one of them was like altruism and one of them was, yeah, that's the only one I can remember off the top of my head. I have to find the article, but um, I remember. Yeah, you have to find that article because I definitely want to read it. Yeah, yeah, I'll find. I've got it somewhere on my computer because uh, I remember it being amazing. It was about uh, challenging the status quo, essentially, of how we look at and assess occupations. Um, and and I, I have always sort of looked more at the engagement because the engagement in a lot of cases is, I mean, that's what we do. We are trying to, if people are already engaged in an occupation and they're happy with it, then there's nothing for us to do. Whereas if there's something that people, it's the barriers to engagement that quite often we end up working with. So engagement seems to be that sort of standout uh, concept that OTs really, really need to be looking at more, but tend to get stuck in looking at the occupations themselves, and I'm not saying they're not important, don't send me hateful emails because of that, but I think that the priority that we put on looking at 
the occupations themselves over the engagement is maybe slightly out of whack. Uh, anyway, where was I? Dude, dude, soul. <laughs> oh my god! You know, I, I, it's funny because I've been, I'm, I've been encountering a lot of soul OTs lately, which I'm actually, it, it gets me giddy because sometimes I feel like I'm on an island when it comes to like the way I feel about how I perceive occupational therapy. But man, you, I already knew this about you, but you've already, you've, you've been in my soul OT box. Um, and that just speaks so much volume. And I'm, I'm like really stoked about reading that article as well, because it's so true. It's like, that's what we live and breathe for is, you know, we talk about what the client needs, wants, and has to do. And it's the wants and has to do is what inspires me to go into work every day. I want to be there with my client in those moments. Sure. There's things that we need to do. And I think that's also where we get tripped up with this whole occupational balance thing, even for ourselves, is that we are constantly in the, I need to do this. And again, that journey of destination to getting that task or thing done. And I think that's where we miss the mark on truly achieving that balance or occupational satisfaction is that we're constantly striving for that ability to to get that occupation done or looking only at the task, just like you said, with uh, therapists doing that. And I think I've, I've been guilty of that many times over because there's something else I'm preoccupied with. And it, it all comes down to time. And I, I think about this often too, is we're constantly racing the clock of time and about the things that we need to get done or are not constantly preoccupied, again, goes back to not being here in the present moment with where we need to be. And it's completely, completely depleting our stamina in order to achieve what we want to achieve. Definitely. Thousand, thousand percent. I've actually just found that article. So it's uh, 2009 by Karen Hamill, and it's titled Self-Care, Productivity, and Leisure or Dimensions of Occupational Experience. Rethinking occupational categories. Perfect. Oh, exciting. It's it's important to, you know, challenge a lot of these things that a lot of the time we just take for granted. Mm-hmm. And they've been around forever. Like the productivity, leisure and rest, that was I remember reading that in an article by Aldolf Meyer from nineteen twenty two. Like that's been around since then, at least. And this is the first article that I've read that really, I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but it's the first one I've read that really challenged that, and that's 2009. So, yeah, that's Hmm. 100 and, no, sorry, 87 years or something. I think that that's very telling of not just learning from history to, to determine where we're going, but I also think it's very important to determine where we are at on a societal level and where our clients are going and moving towards, mm-hmm. even though that sounds contradictory to what I'm talking about. If we know where the trends are going and where clients are occupying their time, where we're occupying our time, are we keeping up with the masses? For example, I think about technology. I think about how quickly we are adapting to using technology to communicate and socialize with others 
how much we rely on that communication device for basically running our life, um, how that also is causing for disruption in our life and how that can increase risk for occupational deprivation from the way that we used to communicate and the way that we used to have socialization. Um, it's very fascinating because nowadays, and I could be very wrong about this, but from my observations in myself and observations in others, a lot of the time I think what disrupts our balance and our ability to do activity that we love to do or need to do is those distractions of things that we think are leisure or rest or are not necessarily productive moments of time but they're things that we're trying to shut down in our life because we are unable to feel rested or unable to feel like we're uh, like we're able to rest on our own if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a hard it's a hard thing to grapple with because as human beings, we our brains and our physiological responses are so smart. They adapt and they subconsciously do things for us on our behalf that we don't even know we needed. Um, for example, speaking of the technology here, I believe that we get very distracted by our phones and we or digital media and we are it becomes part of our, our ritual or our routine or our habit to check our phone or to connect on the phone or do a to-do list or something associated with that. And our bodies and our brains are adapting for automatically picking up that phone, number one. Number two, when our task focus on that is being disrupted, we become agitated. There's actually a really great article that I posted a while back on my um, social pages that I can send you um, as well that talks about distracted parenting in regards to technology. And it's not that parents want to be bad parents. They, their, their brains are doing the best they can yep. with the technology in front of them, right? Condition. But then, totally. But then we were so unconsciously aware of the consequences to our body as well because then our body also shuts down and we feel more tired and we wonder where time went and talk about, again, occupational balance. We're constantly distracted by the very external thing that we are relying on for our brain and body. And then that's the very thing that's causing us to feel depleted and feel exhausted because we've put in so much cognitive stamina to that thing of course we don't feel balanced. Of course we feel like we're constantly catching up to self-care. Of course we constantly feel like we're catching up to, you know, truly feeling rested. And that's like, and that's, oh, you're right. Sorry. Keep going. No, it's fine. And then we feel guilty about it. Like, oh, I should have known better. Or, oh, I, you know, I really should, I really should do some self-care. But then we don't do it and we we don't know why, but the truth is I think our body is telling us you've had too much stimulation, Yeah, right? I mean, I'm currently in the middle of marking some assignments for my first years, and what they had to do was essentially a time year study. So they had to collect everything they they did over a four-day period 
analyze that data um, and then had to write a big report and analyze it and stuff. But one of the, the pieces of data that they collected was uh, when they were doing just the one occupation or when they were doing like multitasking, when they were doing something else at the same time while they were, they were doing that occupation. And it blows my mind how little time is spent by youths nowadays doing just the one thing. There are right. there were students that I've marked that literally the only thing that they did, the only occupation that they performed where they weren't doing something else was sleeping. Like that was it. The rest of the day they were, you know, on their a lot of it is on their phone. Uh, social mm-hmm. media or, you know, Snapchat or whatever it is that they're doing. But they're they're always even and funnily enough they were good enough to dob themselves in the fact that they're doing that in the lectures as well but um yeah it just blew my mind that one there's plenty of evidence to say that multitasking isn't the best for productivity so if you're trying to get something done trying to do two things at once you're better off doing them one after another like there's there's evidence for that but two like how little time they spent in the present and just giving their full attention to anything. And I, I, part of me wonders whether it's kind of like chicken or the egg, whether this is the time that, because uh, I guess this is the first generation that's really sort of growing up with that technology. Like me, when I grew up, it was just coming in, so I was kind of introduced to it as it was developed. Whereas these students know no different. Like it's always been there. They don't, they don't remember. This is the first generation that doesn't remember a time when there was no internet. Um, this is the first lot of sort of teenagers and young adults that don't remember not having smartphones. So like that, it's always been there for them. So I wonder whether it does make me reflect on whether this is to them is probably the norm. This is, this is what they have grown up with. This is how they feel that the world is they don't know any different whereas to me and and that was reflected in you know their analysis of their time like their their answer to a lot of things with regards to getting more stuff done was i can do you know multitask and get more things done i'm like well that that doesn't that doesn't work like you right you need to you would be better off trying to thin things out and you know putting a bit more of a plan in place and doing the one at a time but to right. that that but that's me coming from my perspective and with my you know contextual knowledge about a world that didn't have any of those distractions in it beforehand uh it's i i wonder what impact that just that shift in perspective from a generational point of view is going to have on a group of therapists at the moment who are out there who you know are probably more looking at it from my perspective, but trying to work with people from their perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting you brought that up because it's, it's true. We want to do more with less time when, in fact, we need to do less with the time we have. And we put these unachievable goals on ourselves, I believe, in, the, in how time should be spent. And we try, it's like what you were saying, we try to cram in 
everything into the 24 hours we have, including sleep and whatnot and time with our loved ones. But the truth is, you know, we're just not consciously making a priority of what we need to do or want to do or have to do. And instead, we are thinking we can add more onto the fire when in fact, we need to be prioritizing what we're replacing in order to get our priorities done and actually truly feel satisfied in what we're, we're doing. So for example, one of my OT tribe members was talking about um, needing more time or not having time in regards to self-care and having all these assignments to do and readings and tests to study for. And they're, quote, trying to achieve their self-care. They're, they are genuinely believing and perceiving the intention to try. However, it takes us to plan it in our schedule. It physically like a meeting. And also knowing that something else has to come off our plate. Because we absolutely cannot do, A, we can't toggle between things like a ping pong ball. It yeah. just, our brain is way too... It, it there's no way we will achieve flow in what we're doing and achieving flow in an occupation that's meaningful is so important in order to get move forward and get over that hump of our goal and where we want to be in that pleasure center so to speak with our occupation or satisfaction with quote productivity um but it just we cannot afford more time in the day it's just impossible we are putting unrealistic expectations on ourselves. And I, you know, I don't blame our humankind for, for feeling bad about that because they, the, I, I get that. I, I have the intention to do so many things. And then all of a sudden I get hit like a ton of bricks with my autoimmune condition and the world stops and I have no power in that. So that means that I'm not afforded 24 hours. I'm afforded maybe two if I'm lucky in that day yep. or three. Yep. And I have to decide what's on my priority list right now. Is it me getting better? Is my priority list meaning that I'm going to get that one thing that's going to mo move me forward, whether it's where I want to go in terms of serving my OT tribe or where I'm going to how am I going to show up at work with my employees or how am I going to show up with my loved ones? Am I going to be present when I'm feeling my best there? Where do I truly want to be in all this? And when am I going to finally look at myself and say, I'm truly caring for myself, not saying I need to invest in, you know, a bubble bath or a massage, but where am I truly caring for myself in regards to where I want to occupy my time in the moment with the time I'm given? And that brings me to something else, I think, that, that perfectly highlights something else that I've been saying for a long time is that I think OTs and with the whole balance thing and all of that, we've been stuck looking at the purpose of occupations. And I think personally, I think that the meaning has a, a bigger impact. And I think that's where we should be focusing. It's almost like the forgotten aspect of occupations when yeah. Really like the the meaning is going to be fairly closely linked with the purpose, but if we look at the purpose only, we're missing out on so much valuable information with regards mm -hmm. to what this occupation actually means for someone. And I think also going full circle, like if we're looking at the meaning specifically and using that as I guess 
a really strong guide as to what we're doing with with clients and where we're going with the therapy, uh, it, it cuts out almost all of the assumptions because we're not working with any of our own information. We're working purely with the information that we get from another person. What is the meaning to them of engaging in this particular occupation? Well, I can't really put any assumptions onto that because that information has all come from uh, that other person. Whereas I can look at a situation if we're looking just at the purpose and go, well, obviously they're doing that because of this. It's quite easy to put assumptions into purpose, but it's much, much, much more difficult to put it into meaning, especially if you are actually talking with a person. Okay, another OT soul moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, because every every time I walk into a client's room, just because I know their diagnosis and I hear, you know, what they've done in their prior level of function does not mean that I assume how they spend meaningful time. I have to find out and investigate. I have to be the detective in this line of work. I have to know the ins and outs of where this client's been, where they're going, what's meaningful to them, what's not. And that truly brings them purpose. Actually, I'm going to take that back. It's selfish. I, it brings me purpose yeah, to be able well, to yeah. provide them the tools they need to be meaning, to have meaning in their life. Like I feel selfish every single day when I work with clients that I want them to achieve meaning. I do not care if they don't wear socks and that we quote need to practice putting on socks with posterior hip replacement. I seriously could care less. I, I really care about, is this client going to be able to play Mahjong at the coffee shop despite their incontinence? I think like, that's where my heart is at every day. And I will not stop until I get their, the meaning that they need in their life. That's awesome. And I think, uh, I, th I think that we can easily misinterpret situations too if we're not looking at the meaning. Like if we're only looking at the purpose, which whether you want to or not is going to come with some implicit biases based on our own situation totally. and our own knowledge, prior knowledge. Even if you have prior knowledge of that person, it's still going to come with our bias. Yes. I, I think we're not, we, we, we can't, deliver an effective therapy service by doing that and I, I i do feel that the whole the the other aspect of what we were talking about before of the occupational categories like occupational categories are an assumption of purpose so if i say that this occupation is you know a productivity occupation there is an assumption about what the purpose of that occupation is uh even if i you know completely get all the information that I base that off from the person. If I tell you, I go, yep, okay, I analyze, you know, this occupational history. I've worked with this person. I know this person exceptionally well. They do knitting and it's a productivity occupation. And I tell that to you, you straight away have an assumption about why they do that and what, what they get out of it. Right. Whereas if I explain to you that, you know, they engage in knitting, they find it very restorative, it's something that they got from their grandma, they got taught, it's, you know, this particular technique is something that their family's been doing for three generations, 
and there she's worried that her arthritis in her hands is making the mobility difficult to actually perform it you get one a much more clear idea of how important that occupation is to that person but also you're now looking at that occupation and I'm speaking for you and you can clarify if I'm right or not but you're now looking at that occupation from that person's perspective you're not Unless you have been through a very similar situation, which, you know, I highly doubt because everyone's situation is different, you're not going to be putting as many assumptions into the meaning or the purpose of that particular occupation for that individual. Does yeah. That, does that make sense? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I was thinking about the implicit bias piece and then also what knitting might mean. If, I, if my client says... If I say, okay, how do you spend your time? What is enjoyable to you? And we say knitting, and I just take it at face value. Okay, knitting, I'm going to write that in their occupational profile that they like knitting. But I'm not asking the question of, tell me more about that. What is it about knitting? You know, And then it may not be about the knitting itself, like keeping your hands busy, or maybe someone else is in another interpretation. It could be that they like to make a scarf for their loved ones during the holidays, or maybe in another interpretation, it's they do knitting with their family and everyone's kind of chit chatting, drinking tea and they're, you know, they like to create something together, or maybe it's something that's a pastime that they used to do with their mother when they were a kid. I mean, then you're talking about meaningful occupations in the sense of social participation or, roles that were played when you were younger with the rituals and routines that feel familiar and and bring you joy or maybe it's just the satisfaction of creating something with your hands there's so many different interpretations of what that one occupation may mean and our implicit bias getting in the way of that may disrupt their ability to achieve that occupation to their fullest because we may not have an answer for them if we're looking at it from that implicit bias and we need more self-awareness in that, right? Where we're not projecting, oh, you should, or we should work on X, or I should give you an adaptive tool, or you should do it this way, when it's actually not about that. Mm. And I think we could be more fruitful in our treatments or in our plan of care when we ask more questions like, tell me more, or describe to me what what value that brings in your life or just getting a little bit more nosy about what is it about that knitting that you like so much? Mm. Cause for me, I'm like, who the hell could like knitting? It seems so boring to me, but that I think helps me in a way. Cause then I'm like genuinely curious about what they get out of it. Totally. And we, and we don't have to like it and we no. don't have to know how to do it. I have no idea. A lot of, in a lot so, of cases, I, I would get the person to, like, for stuff like that, I'd be like, oh, can you show me how to do it? Because I've got no idea. Exactly. I often find that that, one, it, it's a really good rapport building exercise. But two, then you get a better, uh, I guess you, you gain a, a more full understanding of the occupation itself. Like, how can I help someone if I don't know how it works? That kind of thing. So... Like I've had clients totally. teach me all kinds of things. I had a client once that taught me sign language so that we could communicate better. Like, 
uh, it's empowering for me and it was a lot of fun for me, but it's also really empowering for them and you gain a better understanding of them, of their motivations, of their occupations, that kind of thing. So I, I think that is a really valuable tool. Totally. Totally. There was something I was going to say too that went along with that and it will come back to me, but I just, oh, I remember a client of mine way back when, when I was working at the VA, um, had a pretty significant hemonopsia and their insight was fair to their hemonopsia as well. And one of his favorite occupations is golfing. And I'm like, I don't know a lick about golfing. <laughs> and, and, but the thing is, I said, you know, and it's ironic because he, his, his hemonopsia was so bad yet, <laughs> and his balance was off because of it too. I said, show me, show me how you, your golf swing, because I, I needed to understand the mechanics of what this was going to impact his occupation, like how his occupation would be impacted by his hemnopsia and his balance and his ability to engage with swinging the ball. And I had to understand more about his occupation in order to help figure out adaptations or some sort of modification if possible. Um, if that's truly what he wanted to get back to. And so he showed me and actually fascinatingly enough, he was talking it through while he was physically showing me what a swing might look like for a particular club. And, and then I can see where the problem was with the dysmetria and, you know, all that kind of stuff and how to help best support him in that. It was very powerful. And it took me out of the frame of, Oh, I don't, I don't know about golf. So I guess, you know, I can't help you. <laughs> it's, and that's it. Like a lot of people will be like, "Oh, I need to find someone else that can help you that might know about golf." And you don't necessarily have to know anything. I don't know anything about golf either, but I'd be more than happy to work with someone who enjoyed golf because I am equipped with the skills of being able to look at and analyze an occupation, and I am equipped with the skills to be able to build a relationship and and work with people. Exactly, and that's truly the intervention, right? That's truly the intervention book that we've always looked for is what we've been taught in school the whole time. And our clients are the experts of their meaningful occupation. And all we have to do is find out more about that. That's all we have percent. to do. I mean, it's amazing to me. Like I get paid every day for this. And yeah. I, I like, I, it's, that's why it's the best job in the world. And I, I mean, yes, I'm biased to that. <laughs> I mean, I've, but that's my favorite occupation, right? I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with it. So all I need to do is help others figure out what they're obsessed with and how they can get back to that. I just want to read this because I've just found some quotes that I pulled out of this article ages ago. And these are some of the categories that Hamill proposes that we use instead of looking at categories of occupation. So the first mm. one she talks about is restorative occupations. And she talks about both active and passive ones. So you know, active, physically active or passive as in, you know, reflection and sitting and relaxing and that kind of stuff. Uh, she also talks about occupations fostering belonging, connection and contribution, uh, which are the ability to contribute to others in reciprocal relationships. So looking at, um, you know, making, building relationships, families, friends, extended communities, 
being able to foster perceptions of value, competence, and self-worth within these connections, etc. Uh, she also looks at engaging in doing occupations, which is probably most of the ones that we already look at. So it's an experience-based category encompassing occupations that contribute to a sense of purpose and meaning in everyday life, and thus a sense of well-being. She looks at things like, that's your usual, you know, paid employment, volunteer work, educational pursuits, home, garden maintenance, finance activities, correspondence, fulfillments of obligatory roles, etc. So pretty much everything that we already look at. Uh, in the last category she's, she's put is occupations reflecting life continuity and hope for the future, which is interesting. She puts that words and phrases used to express this experience of occupation in, may include Dreams, aspirations, goals, continuity, focusing on what I can do, finding ways to enjoy the same things, getting life on track, and reassembling pieces of my life. Oh my God. This is like the Bible. I love it. <laughs> I do. The life Bible. It's, it's the life Bible. I love it. It I, seems I, that way. I'm so excited to blow this up and put it on my wall because it's, it's like it's encompassing everything that I do. I love it. I love it so much. And it, it seriously could be treated like a religion. It is so good. <laughs> so it's all based on stuff that I've, I've spoken about on this podcast for ages about values and that kind of stuff. And that humans, and there's a quote here from Law, uh, there's a, that humans have this intrinsic need for self-maintenance and expression, of, expression and fulfillment. And none of those are categories of occupations. They're categories of engagement. So they're things that, you know, okay, we need these things. We're going to fill them with different occupations in order to, you know, fill those needs. So we need occupations that fill the need for self-maintenance. We need the occupations that fill the need for expression. And we need occupations that fill the need for fulfillment. So... I feel, and in the when I'm thinking about occupations, I just feel that engagement is a better way to go about it, and a, a much more mm -hmm. valuable way. Especially, you know, I, I get that you know going through these stages and the evolution of the profession, it was an important stage. But I, I think that OTs, I don't think we're very. I, I honestly don't think, as a profession as a whole, that we're very good with critical thinking. Um, I think we are often too passive and just, you know, we do things because they've always been done that way in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Again, just mm -hmm. my, just my opinion. Don't, don't throw hate at me people, but. We're just talking real talk here. And I think the truth oh, is, no, know. you know, if we're going to live authentic, authentically, we have to be truthful and we have to have these hard discussions. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think you and I connected in social is that nothing is going to be achieved with a fruitful life if we don't have these authentic discussions and kind of pulling apart where we are now and exploring, okay, how are we going to tweak this? And what's our next blueprint for our life? And we, we have to have these hard discussions and, oh. and figure out, are we truly feeling satisfied? Not just, you know, not just for our clients' sake and their ability to do the activities they need to do, but are we feeling satisfied in where we're going and are we happy in what we're doing for a living? Definitely. And, and definitely. It's, I, it's kind of interesting. I, I didn't want to forget this point real quick, but I just, you were saying something, Oh, as you were listing off all of those fan, fantastic points in the article, mm -hmm. 
I hear often from, um, sometimes it's fieldwork students, sometimes it's those I mentor, they're, they work in a medical model. I work in a medical model. I actually work in a medical model in the U.S. So people that work in a medical model in the U.S. know what it's like and how you breathe it and live it and feel it within the confines of the system that you work in. And a lot of the times it's hard to understand the concept of where psych plays a role in how we treat clients with physical injury impairment or recovery in some fashion. And it's, it's everything. I, I just did a, uh, I, I just actually posted an old video um, on my Instagram TV about pain. And I was talking about how the emotional component is just as equal as the physical component. Our clients are physically paralyzed by their, the psych component associated with pain just as much as the physical pain itself. And we have to be able to tap into where our clients are at from an emotional, social, psychosocial perspective in order to move anywhere. Or you're just you're just paralyzed from the neck down in your ability to do anything. And so if we don't understand that meaning, if we don't understand that fulfillment, if we're not sure about how to fill that void in satisfaction, for the ability to participate in something that's meaningful, then we'll never get them moving and we'll never be able to move ourselves. Um, if we're constantly thinking about the, the broken bone and how do we, how do we move it? Right. How do we move it? But it's more about, well, where are we going and what, when do we want to get there and how are we going to get there with the broken bone? Yeah, definitely. And I, I've, I guess I come from a mental health background, so I've that that is what I do. But I've always, I could never understand how it was possible that people couldn't look at the mental health stuff. It'd be like building a Ferrari with no engine. Uh, totally. Like you can, you know, make people physically able as possible. They could be the fittest human on earth, and if they just don't care about what you're trying to get them to do. They're not going to do mm-hmm. it. Like, mm-hmm. you, if you don't, if they're not motivated by what you've suggested, then again, that's a whole other thing that I'm going to go into at another time is motivation. But mm. it's not necessarily that they're not motivated; it's that you haven't found what motivates them. I'll say that much. But right, uh, like, yeah, you you can't have one without the other. Like you, like you said, you can't have a Ferrari with no engine because it's not going to go anywhere. You can't, and likewise, you can't have a Ferrari engine without the rest of it. Like it's not going to go anywhere. You need both mm-hmm. aspects of it in order for people to, you know, operate well and live a fulfilling life and attain their their perspective of well being and all of that good juicy stuff. But you need both aspects. You can't look at people as components in isolation like you mm-hmm. need to look at people as a whole otherwise you just you're just pushing problems around otherwise you're not solving anything for for people you're not helping them solve anything you're just shifting the issue mm-hmm. right and it's you know it's i want to re-emphasize this piece is i don't think it's us as practitioners fault for doing that I think that we just have to reevaluate from time to time, like, am I achieving what needs to be achieved here? And how can I self-reflect on this? 
because I find myself, you know, I fall off the wagon sometimes. Oh, and, definitely. you know, something's distracting me. And the moment I'm self-aware of that, then I can reflect and, you know, reverse engineer how to fix this and not just fix it, actually, more just, you know, re- modify and, and figure out how I can get on the right path here for both me and my client. But I think as humans, you know, we're allowed to fall off the wagon. And as long as we recognize and now know the information, we can move forward and figure out where we're going to go from there. Um, and we're so used to what we've been taught in, as I said, the system we work in, wherever that might be in the world. And so we just have to revisit from time to time, where's our roots? Where, where, do, we fit, where do we truly fit into this? Not by someone else's standards, but by our own standards in how we want to practice and how we want occupational therapy to be perceived and what what do we truly bring to the table? I think we need to do more soul searching and that more regularly to stay consistent with our own values and our own meaning, if that makes sense. A thousand percent. Definitely, definitely, definitely. It makes it makes perfect sense. And I guess it, it kind of comes back to the point where I don't feel like OTs are particularly good at critical thinking. And part of that is thinking some things that might seem harsh for yourself like am i actually doing the best i possibly could for my clients like mm-hmm. is this method is this way of thinking is this frame of reference the best or getting the best outcome that i can possibly get for the people that i work with mm-hmm. and i was thinking before when i was asking people not to hate on me i'm like anyone who is actually you know taken offense by any of that stuff that i said is essentially just proving my point because you should be able to, I should be able to say right now that OT is not as good as any of the other health professions. And you should be able to, one, mm. critically think and go, okay, well, why is he basing that? What is he like? Let's have a look at it and let's see if, you know, there's something that we can improve. I don't actually think that, right. just to clarify, but we need to be able to have those really difficult conversations. Like, mm. is OT relevant? We need to be able to have these really difficult conversations. And yes, I think the majority of people are going to go into that particular argument with a very, again, implicit bias. But we still need to be able to have the conversation. It's important that we're able to have that level of conversation with ourselves, with our peers, with other professions, because without that, we're stuck. We're not going anywhere. Yes. And it's interesting the the difficult conversation you speak of i think is a matter of um giving ourselves permission to have flaws yes definitely i i, I think as human beings we want to not just be accepted but we you know by others but i think we also want to feel like we have it together because we have a license behind our profession we we have a we feel or perceive a responsibility that we should know everything. And you can be an excellent practitioner without knowing everything. And For sure. we ha- when, when you feel confident in that, this is like the basis of what I do in my mentorship is building that confidence around who you are as a practitioner and also a community member too and how you live your life. because 
when you feel that confidence, you can have, you can open up room for these conversations because you're ready to receive them. If you're not in a space where you're feeling confident about where you're at in your practice, no Mm -hmm. matter how new or how veteran you are, then you, it, it won't be received well. And it's, that's another thing that I think is interesting about pointing out, Oh, I might get some hate mail those people are just not ready to receive. And I think that that's a big, a big component that we can all learn. And in terms of our practices, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a clinician working with that client, that's like refusing you, they're not ready to receive. And it's our job to figure out why in all aspects of our life. Why am I not ready to receive? Or why is this client not ready to receive? Why is this person I'm talking to not ready to receive? And it's up to us to either decide to ask the questions and figure it out or to step back because we're just not ready to deal with it. And that's okay. It's okay to have those boundaries. It's okay to not have it perfect and right. I uh, Another concept that's really important to me is exploring imposter syndrome on a constant basis because yes. as humans, we have, we all, at least all the people I know that I hang, all the people I hang out with who are constantly aspiring to do better and grow, all of them have imposter syndrome. I have imposter syndrome. It's, we just haven't, we haven't experienced that thing yet that we're having the uh, uh, fraudulent feeling about. Yep. And that's okay. It's a human thing. It's, it's, it's so normal. And when we acknowledge and bring awareness and bring mindfulness to it, we can actually move through it instead of pressing it down deeper and making it more heavy and causing it to blow up in our faces and or just giving up and fleeing fight or flight, right? Yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, it's I could talk about that stuff for hours, but (laughs) yeah, it's it's. I I think I think these conversations are so critical. I mean, just the authenticity around it, the unfiltered versions of it, it's extremely important because I will tell you, and I'm going to admit this here, um, I will be happy to go to, not that I do because it, there's a lot of things in alignment with my path and where I need to go, but I, I am more than happy to go to the same conference with the same material because I'm going to hear it differently the second time. I am in a different space in my life every time I'm exposed to the same thing. And anyone that goes to that same conference again and rolls their eyes and says, Ugh, I know this already, is not receiving a different perspective in their life journey at the moment. And that's okay. That's totally okay. I'm not judging that person. They don't have to go to the conference again. However, for me, I if I expose myself to something I've already learned or I've already been through, I'm just picking up other golden nuggets. And it's giving me more perspective to move forward to add more to my toolbox or to add more meaning to my life or, or just to simply be a reminder to get me back on track. Because again, human, I fall. So yeah, I think it goes back to that exposure thing again, deliberate exposure that we were talking about in the beginning of the yeah, conversation. Yep. And, and, and being conf- having the courage to do so. Because sometimes it's scary. 
And I, yeah, I think those those types of conversations require putting ourselves into a situation that is uncomfortable. And I think that's the reason why people don't do it is because it's uncomfortable and no one likes to feel uncomfortable. But again, right. like we were talking about at the start, like uh, we can we we need to be able to train and we can train ourselves to recognize that yes, I'm feeling uncomfortable, but I'm feeling uncomfortable because I am looking I'm looking at myself through this critical lens. Uh, I'm looking to do this for a purpose of self-improvement, and I know that it's not permanent. I know that, you know, it's going to last for, you know, a couple of hours or whatever while I'm reflecting and writing something up on this. So I can sit with this. You're not, uh, it's not going to, you know, kill you to be uncomfortable by thinking a thought for a little while. But we need to be self-aware enough to know where that feeling has come from so that we can sit with it. And the longer you can sit with it, then the next time you do it, it's going to be easier. And then the next time after that, it's going to be easier. Same as training anything like we were talking about at the start. It's an important skill set to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Because that comes back to any change. Uh, Any change you make in your life is uncomfortable. So when we're talking about uh, being able to train adaptability, this is a big part of it. This is one of those sort of resilient type skills that needs to be trained in order for you to transition uh, any challenges successfully is the ability to recognize and know that any change, whether you choose it, whether it is thrust upon you, whether... You know, it's a a lifespan change, like a a life development change or, you know, an employment change, whatever it is, there is going to be a level, whether it's really minor or really massive, of uncomfortability that you will experience during that transition. And it's important that if you can't sit with that and you can't, you don't have the ability to tolerate that level of uncomfortability you're not going to go through with it. You're not going to make that transition successfully because you you don't feel like you can. When in reality, mm-hmm. if you're able to identify that, yes, I know where this is coming from. Yes, I am familiar with this feeling. Yes, it sucks. It's, you're allowed to admit it sucks. You don't like it. It's not nice, but it's not going to kill you. And you know that right. the benefit outweighs whatever uncomfortable feeling that you're feeling at that point in time. Then you're going to better transition. It's, it's uh, something that once you kind of accept that it's there, accept that you understand like why it's there, where it's come from, and what impact it may or may not have on you for whatever period of time, it it's kind of like anything with self-awareness. It doesn't have the same impact on you just by acknowledging it. Right. That mindfulness and that ties in so perfectly with that self-efficacy piece that you were just touching on. Yeah. We, we have to believe that we are capable of tolerating discomfort. But the problem is with that is we will never feel the discomfort if we don't try. And in, in, we have to almost, um, I, I, re- I refer to this quote I go to, it's my own quote, 
I just, you know, I have my own <laughs> mantras and that's, that's actually how I get through life is having my own mantras. So yeah. I can keep me centered, but failures are deposits into your own success. And I will tell you as an example, every time I go to a meeting with the big bosses, uh, I, I'm trembling every time I speak up, but I speak up anyways, because I have to keep depositing into my success to overcome not the shakiness to overcome any reservations I have about not speaking up because I know that my voice needs to be heard. And I know that I have something valuable to say and my self-efficacy with that only stems from the strength in trying every time. And any hesitation I have will, if I don't follow through with the, if I, you know, I'm not mindful and I say, oh, I'm hesitating and I don't do action, then I'm only jipping myself of another deposit into that success. So I have to be able to hesitate, acknowledge it and still speak up and, and, and just acknowledge that I'm shaky inside. Like I'm, because what I'm saying is, is I'm saying it for the first time, every time. Definitely. So, and it's okay. And then you reflect and go, well, how that, how did that go? Okay. Well, I'm either satisfied or I'm not. And then I learn from it and I keep going forward the next time I have that big crazy meeting. And that's, that's like with, as with anyone who comes up with situations like that too, you can use your OT skills to, uh, you know, work towards that. You can grade that situation. So obviously if you have, say, for example, a fear of, you know, speaking out uh, in front of people that you know you may not be familiar with, you're not friends with, like meetings and stuff at work, starting out speaking in front of a 10,000 seat auditorium probably not the best idea. But making conversation sure get you there faster. I, I <laughs> potentially, depending on a lot of other factors, it could. You may crap yourself on stage, but that's okay. <laughs> Yay! It's part <laughs> of the process, right? That's it. But like you can grade that. So like you might have you know, smaller meetings or meetings one-on-one with people that you're not familiar with and then work your way up to it. You can have conversations with just like outside of work with people that you don't know, like, oh, meet new people. That's a good way of learning how to speak to people, funnily enough. But you're able to, once you identify, okay, like this, this particular situation triggers a feeling of uncomfortableness. That uncomfortableness, it's not a warning. It's not trying to say, oh, shit, I need to avoid this. It's simply mm-hmm. a flag saying, this is you growing. This yes. is you experiencing something that you're unfamiliar with or you don't have all the answers to. If you, and by avoiding it, you're cutting off that growth, which is essentially like what your, your mantra says. Like you're, you don't want to avoid that because you're avoiding the opportunity to get better. You're avoiding the opportunity to grow. So by identifying that, you can whack your OT skills into play and you can grade that experience. If that feeling of uncomfortableness is too much for you to handle in that situation, grade it back and then work up to it. Or like we were talking about before, you once you accept it, you may find that it's much easier to sit with that because you acknowledge it, you know it's there, you understand the situation, you understand how change and motivation works and you are going to grow. That's And that's what we all want. That's, uh, that's, I, think, I don't think I've met another person on earth who doesn't want to grow and improve in some aspect of their life. So it's important. Don't avoid it. 
Mm-hmm. Good advice. I think that it's funny, uh, as you said, that I don't think that there's any human that doesn't want to grow. I actually think those growing pains that are giving that flag are warning you and saying, do you want to grow? It's your choice right now. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Or you could stop right now and you could just give it up. And I, I think it shows that person how badly they want this. Because if they truly want to fill that, f- that full 100% fulfillment in their heart for meaning and purpose and satisfaction and having a, even what you were talking about, the contribution in this world, if they truly want to feel fulfilled in that, this is the light bulb going on, or not the light bulb, but the the flash in your in front of you saying, okay, it's time to jump. It's time to go into the deep end. Go. And that there, it's just, it's, it's bringing attention to something really, really great. And it's up to you to decide if you're ready. And I, I, I sp- I've spoken about a couple of times recently about uh, a book that I looked at by Julian Smith called The Flinch. Uh, and maybe even spoken about it in our live. I can't remember. But that, if you have heard of it, that the flinch looks at that moment just before you do something that you feel is uncomfortable or you, you haven't done before. There's that one point in time. And the example he gives is like getting into a cold shower. There is a moment just mm. before you step into the water where your body like tenses up and you freeze. And that exact point in time is the point in time where you need to either back out or push through it. And that feeling of uncomfortableness, like when you're in a meeting, that's the flinch in that situation. That Mm -hmm. is the time when you either shut down and you back out, or you push through it. And his concept, again, looking at grading it, is about training your body to, or your mind more so, to understand that, yes, okay, this is the flinch and to push through it. And it starts with really little things. That's why he starts talking about cold showers and taking cold showers so that you, yes, you experience that flinch. And it's not about avoiding it. It's about experiencing it and then knowing what to do next. So it's about, yep, okay, experiencing it, get in the cold water. Something really basic. You know that's not going to hurt. Yeah, it's going to be a bit weird and a bit uncomfortable, but Training your brain to essentially dive in when you experience that flinch, starting off with something really small, and then you gradually work up to being able to, you know, take control of a meeting if you need to. I find that a really powerful metaphor and something that I've tried in my life. And I, from my experience, it it does work. It can work. But it's about, again, being really self-aware, understanding what you're experiencing being able to critically look at it and then putting some kind of plan into place, whether it's, you know, training the flinch or understanding your motivations or understanding your contextual situation and being able to control that. But it's about putting something into place to not avoid a growth opportunity, but to take it if it is a growth opportunity. Yes, there's going to be times when you feel uncomfortable and it's your gut telling you, okay, we need to get out of here like, I don't know, haunted house or something, but you need to be able to tell the difference. And it's important that you're able to critically look at a situation. And I think as OTs, we're really equipped to be able to look at that because we have the knowledge of this kind of stuff. We have the knowledge of the the psychological side of engagement. We have the knowledge of the physical side of engagement and task analysis and looking at what makes up an occupation. 
We have all of these skills in our toolkit already. It's a matter of using them more effectively and using them with yourself. Yes. There, it's, it's the matter of giving the tools to your client for what they need to get from the bed to the bathroom when they're in chronic pain. And because of that initial flinch you're talking about. And can I just say, so for the audience, you can't see. I put my hands in the air and I was nodding my head yes when Brock was talking about the flinch right before the cold shower. Because it made me think about that moment on my 30th birthday when I was in New Zealand. And I was standing at the top of the Sky Tower And I was going to jump down and that flinch moment happened when I had my arms, if you could imagine kind of this, these two poles on one on left, one on right, and you have to hold onto the poles with your arms outstretched to your sides and you're holding on there and you're just doing what the instruction person is telling you to do. They're like, okay, put your hand here, put your hand here. You're on the harness. And she goes, go, or she goes, let go. And I, that was my flinch moment. I'm like, what? You want me to let go? And I could have said, nope, I'm out of here. I'm going to go to the elevator and come down. Or I could just let go and let myself fall. And that flinch moment happened for me as I was looking at this beautiful skyline. And it took me a little while to just get in the water, right? To just let go, to just jump off and let myself fall off that tower. And I will tell you, the moment I let go, the flinch moment went away as soon as I went like two feet in, into the, flaw, the fall. And I was screaming, you know, I was feeling the wind. I was looking at an amazing view. I mean, there were so many emotions I can't even tell you. Can't even describe like how beautiful those emotions were, but I hit the ground in a good way. And all I could think about was I wanted to do it again. And I would let my 89 year old grandmother at the time do it as well. (laughs) Like I just, I just was like, I just thought about it. Like we all have those flinch moments right before something really exciting is coming. Like when something really exciting is coming our way, we have those flush moments. We have those hesitations because we don't know what it's going to be like, but when we're in it, it's incredible. And it does, that flinch moment doesn't last any longer than you allow it to. Like if you let it, if you let it stall and you let it get stagnant, it's going to feel worse and worse and worse and worse and worse on your shoulders. It's going to feel so heavy, but when you just let it go and you just dive in the water it's gone. It's already over. It's done. And so that's why I, I personally feel do it faster. I'm not saying do it reckless. Yes, of course. Going back to Brock's point, we want to listen to our gut saying, "Mm, this is not very safe or this is not really right for me. But if we truly want the thing on the other side and we know that's, what's going to give us satisfaction, that's when we should be in the flinch limbo period as short as possible. And you're right. It doesn't last long. And I can guarantee once you've done it, like if you were to go and do that again, yeah, you probably still have the same little bit of nerves, but it'd be more. Oh yeah. It would be different. It wouldn't, 
it wouldn't be as much of a barrier. It would be more like, oh, I know the excitement that's about to come, the adrenaline dump that's about to happen. And it's the same. Totally. I think people get hung up with, you know, everything, like starting a business, trying a new therapeutic practice, um, you know, changing jobs. People have that flinch all the time. And I think without really good um, self-awareness, uh, I see too far too often that it gets the better of people. And I think that we we miss out on so many really valuable learning opportunities that we could be taking in just from everyday life um, just because essentially we're, we, we get scared <laughs> a little bit. Totally, totally. And, and the thing I think we should be asking ourselves is, you know, if we're satisfied with the current norm, then that's, that's one thing. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said for those in our, in our space and on this earth that love routine. They love being able to do the same thing every morning, noon and night, because it just gives them that pure fulfillment and joy and passion and for life and living it well. Um, However, if we're not happy and we're feeling dissatisfied and we're feeling disappointed with where we're at, that's when we have to say, okay, how quickly can I get through that flinch moment so I can get on the other side of change? Despite it being discomfort for a moment of time, I, I, if I'm wanting a better life for myself or a better circumstance, I have to go through this hard point. I've got to go through the growing pains and be stretched a little bit. And feel the stretch. And and so you can get the fruit that blossoms from that tree that just grew. You know, it's just think about like all those rings in a tree trunk and like how stretched it looks the farther, the older it gets, right? Mm. And every, every moment that you grow into the next uh, decade or the next year, you just see those rings getting thicker and thicker and thicker. And you are more stretched the more experience in life you have. And there's something really cool about those markings, like on our life, um, for the tree. You know, it, it really shows how many seasons they were able to bear fruit. I'm really big about metaphors. <laughs> Good tell. <laughs> yeah, I get into it. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's, but, it, but seriously, like if we want that fruit, that sweetness, uh, we got to stretch. But I honestly think, and this is something I talked about with, uh, who was I talking Oh, with Leah, uh, when I did an episode with her, ooh, 27, 28, I can't remember, uh, was that a lot of this stuff starts with the individual. So if you're able to implement this stuff into your own life, it's going to make you a better therapist. If you yes. avoid this stuff and you don't feel comfortable yet, you're still there trying to get the people you work with to go through it and you're not willing to even attempt the process yourself, you don't have, like we are talking about before, about engaging in the occupation with the person so you have a better understanding. Engaging in this process gives you a good understanding of the psychological process that a person's going to go through when they're looking at trying to change something in their life. And if you don't, do that or you don't strive for that sort of self-improvement you don't have a well-rounded understanding of what people go through and how that process plays out and i don't feel like you can be a a hundred percent effective therapist if you don't understand what you're actually trying to get people to do exactly 
that could be a whole other episode. It can be. It was, it, yes. <laughs> so we have covered so, so much more than we initially intended to today. I know. It's crazy. If you weren't aware, this podcast kind of came about because me and Alexis did a, a live. I can't even remember what the original. The, we did the same thing on the live. We started off with one topic and ended up way in the weeds talking about occupational balance. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, well, we're just going to have to do a podcast on that because it's like a whole can of worms that we wanted to open up. And, well, I think we've just done that and, and more. So, yeah, thanks so much for, for coming along and, and having a chat and delving into those weeds with me. <laughs> yes, me too. I, it's so much more enjoyable when we're able to explore the forest, right, and figure out the weeds and... No agenda is the best. It's like coffee shop talk. And I just love, those are my most favorite conversations. That's the whole reason I run this podcast like I run it because I'm the same. I, I, I had someone like way back in like episode three, someone sent me a message and uh, it was a friend of mine sent me a message and was like, these are the kinds of conversations that you have at the bar after a day at a conference with other OTs. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much exactly what I was going for. So. Pretty happy that, you know, I've learned so much through this process and obviously other people uh, seem to be enjoying it as well. So I will keep doing it because it's fun and I like it. Yay, good. (laughs) I'm glad. I'm excited about that. So where can people find you if they're looking for you online? You can hang out with me on Instagram at 8AlexisJoel or you can stay up to date with the happenings and uh, sign up your email at creatingconfidenceinots.club. This is my way of staying in communications if you don't use social media and more power to you. I don't spam. Actually, I rarely email. And uh, when I do, it's about things that I'm really excited about, whatever I'm sharing. But yeah, it's a good way to communicate if possible um, if you don't have social. So that's me. And if you have any questions, you're Welcome to either tweet them to me, same handle, or uh, info at alexisjoel.com. I'm looking forward to connecting with you guys. And Brock, thank you so much for having this conversation today. I, I was so excited about this conversation because I knew I just wanted to have, like, have my mind blown a little bit and just like expand the world of how we think about OT. And so... Again, I'm feeling a little selfish here, but I got so much out of our conversation and I hope the listeners were able to uh, pick up some golden nuggets from Brock as well um, because he laid them down. And so I'm just very grateful to be able to be the first to listen to those nuggets. Um, And now now you guys get to. So Pleasure's mine. And yeah, it takes two to tango. So the conversation was really, really entertaining and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Same here. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, and uh, we will talk to you very soon. Take care.